Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind. I'm James O'Loughlin. This podcast is about your mind, how it works, mental health and mental illness. And with me, as always, is Professor Ian Hickey, uh, co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney and a psychiatrist. And today we're talking about some new uh, methods that might be able to treat mental illness. We're going to look at ketamine. We're going to look at get this transcranial magnetic stimulation, and we're going to look at psychedelics. What are they? Do they work? If so, how? G'day, and let's start with ketamine. So ketamine has been used as a battlefield anaesthetic. It's been used as a horse tranquilizer, and it's been used as a recreational drug. Now it might help treat depression. Yes, isn't it fascinating how mm. things turn up in the operating theatre, on the street, and now on the psychiatrist's couch? Yeah. Yes. So over the last 30 years, we've had a whole lot of really good improvements in treatments in mental health, but they've largely been flogging the same horse. They've been flogging the monoamine horse. This is dopamine, noradrenaline, serotonin, these key chemicals that regulate a whole lot of brain functions, mood, sleep, appetite energy to some degree, but they're all related to each other. And, you know, for a lot of the common mood disorders, depression, other things we treat, that's kind of good for about two-thirds of people, and we put them all together in various ways, it's okay for another 10 or 20%. But we're always left with 10 or 20% of people with quite severe disorders who actually are not doing well, Mm. so-called treatment-resistant in various ways. People go, well, hang on, maybe we need to do something different. (laughs) Yeah. So people have been looking at drugs that are out there, treatments that are out there, things we've used in the past things used in different settings, in the way they may affect the brain, not assuming you have to act on one of those monoamines, dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline. So ketamine, first off the uh, rack here in this particular discussion, affects the excited parts of the brain. Actually, when your brain is excited, it releases glutamate, it releases other particular things. It's a different kind of chemical system. And it turns out that if you actually give ketamine, particularly in some unusual situations, this comes off the back of using anaesthetics, if you like, things like suicidality in particular rapidly go down. Another another assumption about antidepressants we used in the past in particular is you had to wait two weeks till anything happened. You know, the brain mm. had to reorganise itself. It wasn't just an immediate chemical effect. There were no rapidly acting antidepressants. Mm. Anyway, in studies that uh, in the United States and elsewhere, giving ketamine by injection in emergency rooms, a bit mm. like giving an anaesthetic, which is yeah. where it comes from. Or a horse tranquilizer. Or a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> or people might have done this themselves on the street. You know, mm. actually had this mood-altering effect and particularly this sudden reduction in suicidality. The people dramatically who wanted to kill themselves didn't want to kill themselves after receiving not just the anaesthetic effect, so not just the sedative effect, because this background is an anaesthetic, how to turn the brain off, how to turn the excitatory pathways down isn't the same as just giving an anaesthetic. It actually, without sedating you, made you feel better. So people went, hang on a second, this is really interesting. So that's led now to about but a decade. But you could say, you know, I don't know, if you gave them uh, ecstasy or a line of coke, they might feel better too. We'll come to that because stimulants, <laughs> for right. another episode, uh-huh. why have stimulants always been popular? <laughs> yeah. We're going to return, I think, to when I was a young psychiatrist, there were all sorts of substances that were much more popular. Stimulants was one. So giving amphetamines used to be a very popular treatment. Trouble is, short-term benefit, long-term pain. Well, that's what I'm wondering with ketamine. When the the effect wears off, does the suicidality return? Right. So 
let's just say not all things about the American health system are great. So getting you out of my emergency room by giving you ketamine, yeah. <laughs> I'm a suicide, or you're off my, you're out of my place. And may not be you so get good. Home, in, it's all bad. May not be so good in two days' time. In fact, to take the anaesthetic example or the sedative example. So in the past, we have used other anaesthetic agents or we've used other sedatives like benzodiazepines to actually calm people down. But when they wore off, guess what? The problem was back. Mm. So the interesting thing about ketamine is when people did this, the suicidality and the depression did not immediately return. Mm. There's a problem for the area that I work in. All our great theories of what would take weeks to happen, this didn't fit. <laughs> it's actually doing something chemically acutely, but it's... Uh, effect appears to last beyond the thing. Now, as time has gone on with these treatments, it has become apparent that to a certain degree they do recur, right? But importantly, as an option for people who have not responded to other treatments, it appears as if some people respond preferentially to this treatment who've not responded to the other treatments. The classical monoamine, the classical tricyclic antidepressants and the modern Prozac-like agents, CSSRIs, et cetera. So whether that's because they've got a different kind of depression, different kind of illness, but independent of the why, pragmatists that we are, it works. Now, what's going on at the moment is the movement from just using it by injection, where it clearly gets into the brain and the central nervous system, to other options. So at the moment... There are new forms being explored in about 50 countries around the world and just happening in Australia as we speak is the registration of squirting it up your nose. Because oh. I think we might have discussed before, James, but up your nose is the fastest way into your brain. Because <laughs> okay. your brain leaks out of your brain down into the top of your nose. Right. There are nerve cells there that connect straight with your brain. They're actually brain cells. And it gets absorbed directly. So there's intranasal sprays that have been found, versions of ketamine. And because we all prefer to take tablets, there are tablet forms of ketamine being explored. So, so, was, so is that potentially a spray or tablet every day? No, because coming to your earlier point, what's attractive about these particular treatments has been the notion of giving it once or for a certain period, but then not having to take it. Yes. I mean, one of the interesting problems with a lot of the other drugs we have is you take them every day and then you get the side effects, sexual dysfunction, weight gain, other difficulties from the thing repeatedly. The idea that you could actually stop an episode of depression or treat it and actually not have to continue yes. with drugs. Also attractive. So at the moment, for these types of treatments, they're not seen as things that you do every day. They're given as once or, or as a course for a particular period, hopefully to stop the episode, and then you wouldn't need to take them. Now, as in much of these things in the past, whether the illness then recurs or comes back might require future treatment. So that's one of the areas of very active research at the moment. Can it be done by ways other than by injection? Can it be done by up your nose or by taking a tablet? If so, how long does it last? And is it something where you would need to have repeated treatments yeah. if you have a recurring illness? Nasal spray once a week would be good, wouldn't it? Or even less than once a week, just yeah. once a month or whatever. So where are we up to? We're, we're clinical trials. Yes, and in the registration of that has happened in many other countries and has just happened in Australia for the first registration of the up-the-nose version and the expiration of these other versions. So ketamine is something that will is available already in Australia for the treatment of pain, where it's been interesting this background is anaesthetic, and for headache and a number of other areas, but now moving into psychiatry as a treatment for treatment-resistant depression. So not a first-line treatment but a treatment for those who may not have responded to other things. And got some other interesting characteristics as alternatives to taking other tablets long-term. Side effects? So the immediate side effects, you know how we talk about horse tranquilizer mm -hmm. and um, 
and on the street. Now, if you're on the street, usually people like to take stuff on the street because it does weird stuff to your head. So the onset of psychotic-like phenomena and disorientation and problems you know, actually making you considerably disorientated and unwell and experiencing more psychotic-like phenomena is the things we look for acutely. Mm. So we have to be careful about who we give it to and whether they're during the period of immediate intoxication with the drug there may be difficulties. And now people are also monitoring longer term whether other difficulties might then occur. So early days in terms of we know the short-term side effects, whether there turn out to be other longer-term side effects is an issue of active clinical monitoring. So that is ketamine. Psychedelics are also being explored as a potential treatment of mental illness. Psychedelics are... Substances that can change your mood, senses even cause hallucinations. Some occur naturally, like mushrooms, magic mushrooms. Uh, others are made in labs. In fact, they've been psychedelics have been used to tre- treat mental illness for centuries in some cultures. But as I understand, there's been a bit of a gap in the research into their potential use to treat mental illnesses because they were declared prohibited substances in the 19. 19- 60s, where are we up to with psychedelics? I wish, I so wish I was younger and older. If I was older, I would have been in psychiatry (laughs) at the time when psychedelics were very popular. Mm. So LSD type drugs and magic mushrooms now, psilocybin, which is the modern version of these things, were being taken by psychiatrists, (laughs) you know, dinner party drug, taking a trip with your friends, but also being used therapeutically. Yeah actually to change consciousness. So classically, psychedelics are hallucinogens. They're things that make you have a trip, right? You take them, you're significantly intoxicated by the thing, and you start to experience all sorts of visual and other weird stuff in real time, often thought to be quite frightening as you lose control over the the boundaries between you and the external world. Yeah. Sounds terrifying to me. Yes. (laughs) Some people like it, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, as with much drug abuse, James, for those who fear loss of control, yes. <laughs> could you think of anything worse and not being in control of what is happening to you next? So this goes back to where the concept of bad trips, in fact, comes from, of being overwhelmed, being frightened and being psychotic and it being totally destabilised by the experience. Others going, hmm. excellent, that was great, let's do it again, sort of the roller coaster type, and, and being very different and pleasant and what others will say, we're mind-expanding yeah. I have no desire to see my hands melt. <laughs> right. And other such stuff. Yes. But it was interesting that there was quite a interest in the therapeutic possibility for severe anxiety and for severe depression back in the 1950s and 60s. As you quite rightly point out, in the 1960s, the Americans in particular took exception to this, partly that it moved into popular culture use, that there were people who were developing psychotic experiences, who were downside, and the Americans in particular – took a view the rest of the world should stop this and basically put an end to it through a series of legal conventions by the 1970s. Now, for a lot of people with severe anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, treatment-assisted depression, very reputable centres in the United States and the United Kingdom and elsewhere have said, okay, two things. First of all, we can manufacture the stuff to be safe. Hmm. We can control the dose. Now, I would avoid the term micro-dosing that others use because the dose is big enough to give you a trip, right? Right. <laughs> right so it's not that, but it is a controlled and it's manufactured and you know what you're getting. Yeah. <laughs> not something someone just brewed out the back and just, you know, see how this goes. Yeah. So the dose can be controlled. And in normal people and in people with this, you can see fairly predictable length of trip or hallucinatory experience in association so with So you that. still might see your hands melt. You bet. Mm. Wow. <laughs> but – 
but you're trying to pick a dose that has induces the particular mind state without that being overwhelming and has a time course that will pass off in several hours. The second bit that was really interesting was actually associating this with brain imaging studies. And if you look at the brain, when you're doing nothing, <laughs> the brains of people with anxiety and often depression in a thing called the default mode network, the DMN, the bit that's on when your brain should otherwise be doing nothing is very overactive. <laughs> it's preoccupied with itself. It's it's looking at itself all the time. I've done that. <laughs> and not that. looking at anything else. It's I stuck. do that a lot. It's stuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting because if you do a lot of meditation, a lot of mindfulness, you can turn that thing down, interestingly. Yeah, right. But it turns out so do these hallucinogenic substances. If you take them, it appears to turn that down. So two things happened here, really. Three. Oh, okay. And it, there's a whole bunch of people who don't get well with the treatments we've got. You can, you can manufacture a dose of this stuff that actually is fairly predictable in terms of its effects. You know, you get the hallucinogenic experience, but you don't get overwhelmed by it. And then thirdly, brain imaging studies are saying, you know what, this is hitting a part of the brain that is abnormal and is hard to turn off right. in people who are traumatised, who are over-anxious or are persistently well, depressed. Well, that makes sense. It's hard to continue to run around your problems and trauma in your head when your hands are melting. You're just going to be preoccupied right. by if, that. Yeah. Right? So if a person's overly locked on looking at themselves all the time, right, mm. they're lost, locked into their own repetitive thinking patterns. And this substance comes along that dissolves all that, yeah. <laughs> right, causes this weird sense that you don't have to be so in control of your own thoughts. You I, can I mean, let I go. I would imagine going on a roller coaster would have a similar effect because you're just preoccupied by the sensory experience. Yes, although the roller coaster, because it puts your heart in your mouth and you're, of course you to be overwhelmed. Right. For yeah. some of us, you yeah, know, true. a little too far. Was actually this kind of thing. Of, now, this is where in the modern world also, this is not something you just do as a party trick with your friends and see how it goes. So in the clinical trials that are being done, there's a tremendous amount of psychology and therapist assistance. First of all, selecting people for the treatment, not people who are prone to psychosis or, as we've discussed before, prone to bipolar disorder or certain kinds of abnormal forms of depression, particularly those, James, you'll appreciate, the overthinkers, those who are preoccupied and stuck in their own thoughts. Yeah. Then preparing them for the experience. Okay, what's going to happen here is you're going to lie quietly in this place that is safe with somebody next to you who's sitting there, the guide, I love this idea, the guide who goes with you, and what we want you to develop is a sense that you can let go of these things and still be safe. Most of those people are over-controlling and terrified of letting it go that terrible things will happen. I would be. Exactly. <laughs> and that therefore, you'll go through the experience, you can let go, and you can have this, in a sense, what is seen as mystical or different kind of experience. You can experience the world quite differently without being so in control or stuck. So this is the... The language is fabulous here. The kind of mind expanding yes. and the genuine insight in that you don't have to be in control of everything. And then after you've had the experience, so then you have the experience for, you know, four or six hours, quiet room, you know, favourite music on. People love their own favourite music. Mm. You could even have Bob Dylan if you want to. I reckon you know, Pink Floyd would be Pink Floyd. <laughs> something psychedelic. Something. Yeah. Oh, you go back to those periods. You're going to say pink blobs and, you know. Yes. But you know you're in a safe place. You know there's someone there with you. So even if something really terrifying happens. Actually, with Bob Dylan, you'd be thinking, I get it now. <laughs> That's what he meant. Mm, I got exactly. it. Anyway, <laughs> got sorry. It. Yeah, no. And then after you come through the experience safely, you then afterwards discuss again with the therapist what's the insight that you've got out of this thing and how you might make use of this in your life. But you've had the experience. This is one of the interesting things about these approaches. 
In a lot of the therapies I'm involved with, psychological therapies, you talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. The person never has another experience. Their own experience is still the same. It's very hard to explain that you can be different right. without yeah. ever having been different. Yeah. But suddenly when people have been different, they go, you know what? That's still me. But I did experience that differently. I wasn't so yes, preoccupied, it. but it's still me. It's not, not foreign to me. It was my experience still. A bit like your own dreams, if you like. A dreamlike state's often described as. So, you know, that's so still me. It's almost like a, a, an insight into the fact that that depressed, for example, or anxious state I was in, that, that doesn't have to be me because there are other states of being available. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I can be. Now, the people who are really deep in meditation and do this for years and years and years, they develop that same thing, right? That they can be that way. Yeah. <laughs> they can be in the classic mindfulness, at peace with the world or focused on the world. They don't have to be that uptight, self-preoccupied, introspective person they've always been. They can still be themselves. But here's the big thing, and it's a big behavioural principle. So you've used a drug-induced state to create the principle you can actually be different. Mm. You know, it is possible. So we'll stop talking about it and we'll try to work on how we do it. And and so the evidence suggests, again, that the beneficial effects might last longer than the trip? Yes. So you do the one big big guided, safe, controlled trip from which you learn. So people talk about drug-assisted psychotherapy, really. You're using a chemical induction of a state to learn a really important lesson. In this case, if you like the neurobiology of it, how to turn the default mode network off, down, and it'd be a different kind of you. You know, and to, if it, that you's become preoccupied with trauma that's happened to you or particular things that have gone wrong in your life or a particular way of being in the world and being really stuck kind of set you free from that to start to head down a path of, you know what, that's more how I want to be. Not mm. tripping all the time, mm. but, you know, more at ease with the world as it is that I don't have to be so lost in my own stuck thinking pattern. But it sounds like you'd have, I mean, you'd use that as a motivational trip. Yes, I see that I can be in a different headspace and I see that I don't always have to be uh, obsessing about my own problems. But then you would still, I mean, it's the idea that it would make, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy kind of more useful and more likely to take after a use of psychedelics. Yes, to take. That's exactly the point. Now, people go a bit further. She's a sort of agricultural analogy here. They ploughed a different field, okay? They've created an environment. Mm. The the, the seeds of thought now, the seeds of cognitive therapy can can be thrown on more fertile ground. They'll take. Because the person's had an experience. Yeah, I said it. And I think this is actually really true, is that it's very hard to persuade people by rational argument that they can experience something differently if they've never experienced it. (laughs) Once people had the experience, they go, you know what? Funny that. Mm. (laughs) All those things that I thought were not possible, perhaps they are. Now, how else might I then be able to achieve it? Not tripping all the time. <laughs> or get away from the thoughts that I've been so preoccupied with, associated with. A lot of, explana- a lot of uh, exploration here, particularly in post-traumatic stress, particularly in traumatic things. Um, my life is so stuck on one particular thing and one particular episode or particular issues, I can't get beyond it. But yeah. actually, you have this experience of actually getting beyond it. And so it becomes so that it, it moves into the realm of possible. And so I think the effectiveness, the long-term effectiveness does depend on integrating that into the normal self, not the intoxicated with the substance self. And the government is investing $15 million in grants uh, to support 
Australian research in, into psychedelics uh, and using them to help mental illness. I'm, I think the tabloids missed a headline there, an outraged headline about, you know, taxpayer money being spent on psychedelic drugs. It is funny, isn't it? Because it has gone through to the keeper with very little critique. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is, in one sense, a very good thing. Mm. I think we now recognise much more widely that mental health problems really do screw people's lives up a lot. And some things like severe trauma-related post-traumatic stress disorder, severe treatment-resistant depression, we should be. And also, <clears throat> I hate to say it, we're a little bit behind the rest of the world. Right. That, you know, this sort of stuff has become respectable in the United States, in the United Kingdom, being looked at in systematic ways. And a bit like some other areas of biomedical research, dare I say it's developing some of the newer vaccines and other areas, we've fallen a little bit behind. So I think it's uh, both a recognition that these are not just – we're not just trying to drug people out. This isn't about trips. On the other side of the coin, and in, including groups, including uh, – things I'm a member of, like the College of Psychiatrists and others, have been reserved about now. Hang on a second. We're not going to be putting hallucinogens on the street corners, right? Yeah. This is only going to work in highly controlled environments, tying it to those kind of behavioural and cognitive therapies, being careful about what the longer-term effects may be. Because if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, the fact that people had flashbacks and bad trips and, you know, a certain proportion of people were harmed by the uncontrolled use in a wild kind of way... For those who can remember the those years of the you know, 60s and 70s and the countercultural kind of movements, that there clearly were other issues that arose. So I think this is one we need to go forward with in a controlled clinical trial way to work out, okay, for what kind of people, in what sort of settings is mm. this safe and potentially a way forward. Side effects? Well, the acute ones that I talked about in terms of the psychotic things, there are also things in relation to blood pressure and, and other effects. So there are some cardiac, heart other things you'll be careful about. Longer term, this is where things now get interesting. Will I mean, it's being done in very small numbers at the moment, in very controlled circumstances, in very selected patient populations. So I think the issue about whether for some people you may get unexpected, uh, like the bad trips, the sort of flashback type ideas that you'll make some things recur mm. in uncontrolled ways remains an open question. Now, the, the advocates of the area feel that that is very unlikely, that the dosing that's being done, the proper administration small. of things is small, the patient selection is tight, et cetera. So I think we aren't seeing that at the moment in the controlled studies that are being done. Now, there's always a big gap here between things that are done in very small research populations in very controlled ways, in very selected ways, and then what happens if that thing moves out into the wider world. So I think appropriate caution, but really interesting that uh, for some things that have been really hard to treat, it may be a very interesting road to pursue. Mm. And the third experimental treatment we're going to discuss today is TMS, which stands for Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, essentially using magnetic fields to stimulate nerve cells in the brain to improve the symptoms of depression. How does this work? Well, brain stimulation, or doing things other than drugs. So, of course, classically... The first effective treatment ever in psychiatry was really electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. Mm. And that followed on from the observation that if you saw people with psychotic illnesses who had epilepsy, that after they had a seizure, they often said, I feel a lot better, <laughs> right? Right. So it was the observation in people who had spontaneous seizures that led to the idea, okay, what if we caused people to have seizures? First, that was done chemically, and then later on electrically, so ECT. As time's moved on, that you know, got all sorts of its own sort of sets of issues. People said, okay, what about deliver? If the issue here is delivering energy 
to the brain and to different parts of the brain, particularly circuits in the brain. So the modern kind of neurobiology is totally preoccupied with circuits. You know, if you could hit the right circuit with the right kind of stimulus, could you evoke a change in mood, a change in concentration? You see in Parkinson's disease, can you put the right electrical stimulus in the right spot? Can you make people free to move again? So that kind of issue of hitting the right circuit with the right dose of energy underpins this issue. Well, electricity isn't the only kind of energy. You can use magnets. You can use magnetic therapies. So even to make it more complicated, the full treatment is called repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation. Yes. So you're doing repeated pulses of bundles of energy delivered by biomagnetic fields to targeted parts of the frontal cortex and the circuitry that's thought to underpin uh, key areas of mood and other motor regulation in people with depression. So this has been going on now for about two decades. Finally, again, in Australia, finally recognised just in recent times as a respectable treatment. Now, the delay in Australia between the experiments and the regulation has been, it's really unclear who benefits. So you'd hope with a lot of these therapies that we'd know, we'll be able to say to you, you have a high probability of responding. As distinct from, well, you've got depression, we're not really sure. Right. But it turns out that people, it's, we have not been good at predicting, we still are not good at predicting who will respond to RTMS. Mm. But it is an effective treatment. So again, it's in that situation of people who've failed to respond to conventional treatments, and particularly those who may have had drug side effects or may be looking for alternatives. Particularly, again, this kind of ruminative, stuck kind of thinking style. If you think of these circuits as having get stuck and you want to hit those circuits with kind of energy or reboot or rechange what they're doing. So this has been talked about mainly for depression, but for certain kinds of obsessive compulsive disorder and certain kind of other areas where it may be important to think about it as an option. Turns out, not the same as ECT. So the people who get better with ECT, we've got a better idea about this sort of area. But for people with treatment-resistant depression, it certainly represents an option. Very few side effects, done wide awake, no anaesthetic, done as an outpatient procedure, sort of thing you have several times, often five days a week for a few weeks. So mm-hmm. it takes it, not one treatment. The repetitive, It's repeated bursts of the magnetic stimuli over a period of usually two or three weeks and then seeing what the change is in mood, in cognition, in how you think, and also in this kind of uh, stuck circuitry or, or reverberating circuits of thinking do we see improvement. So now coming into more common practice, widely available in many of our private hospitals in Australia and increasingly now going to be available because of recognition by the government as a respectable alternative treatment for treatment-resistant depression. And magnetic treatment's used to treat some sorts of physical pain, isn't it? So the issue of what magnets do, so think about magnets as not just things that pull steel around or whatever, uh, but they, they, deliver, they can deliver bursts of energy. Yeah. So wherever you want to put a burst of energy in particular Get types of magnets. ways, as distinct from just using electricity in the classic way that we do, they're an alternative way of doing it and quite a safe way of doing it. So you can have a lot of fun with magnets on your head, if you've got the right kind of thing, about making your thumb move and doing other yeah, things to make, yeah. other, make your brain. You can see what is really intriguing, of course. You can see, so when people are having, working out their so-called motor threshold for these things, you put a magnet on your head and you make your thumb move. You can see the way in which we can't ordinarily see mm. the way in which a brain circuit is driving something like a physical activity, like moving your thumb or what I'm doing right now, speaking, yeah. or any of the other things that you do. So one of the problems with the brain is not seeing that sort of connection of the pathways. We don't see it in the way that we see everything else mechanically. But really, it's got its own circuits, and it's driving a lot of what we ordinarily do, thinking-wise, emotion-wise, as well as physical movement and other factors. So we've talked about three new uh, treatments for mental health today, ketamine, psychedelics, and transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. 
Any thoughts on how different the way that we treat mental illness will be in, say, 10 or 15 years? And you're not going to be accountable for this. No one's going to remember what you said in 10 years. So have a, have a bit of a punt. Will it be mainly similar with a bit of other stuff, mainly therapy and antidepressants, but a bit more of this stuff? Or do you think it might be even quite radically different? It, um, predicting the future is always a danger. I, I think it'll be increasingly more different. I take we, those disclaimers. Yeah, all the time. I'd be more different. For example, another time we'll discuss other new therapies like immune therapies. Hmm. And there'll be other therapies in affecting how the brain grows and develops, neurotropic therapies. I hmm. think we'll see things that are in the lab at the moment and developing becoming more and more different. And the combinations of those therapies – at different ages being relevant. Since the brain's developing over a long period, things you do in children and things you do in teenagers might be quite different to those things you end up doing in adults. The combinations of psychological therapies, I think what you'll see is the behavioural bit. People needing to make sense of what is happening to them (laughs) will continue. But rather than seeing that as the explanation of everything, many of these other physiological elements and the complexity of the brain and the way that can be manipulated in life I think what we're missing at the moment is this kind of prior predictive thing. Okay, when you come in at this age, at this stage of illness, what tests, what assessments would lead to the highest probability that I could provide you with this best combination of treatments? And which ones could you just go and do at home, right? (laughs) Which ones don't really require you and me to be doing this? Mm. They can be done by you using things that are – now, I say that because, interestingly, some of these physical stimulations of the brain, there are developments in that area – of direct current stimulation, putting very low levels of amounts of electricity through the brain that appear to have therapeutic effects. There'll be all sorts of stuff. People love to do this stuff to themselves. Mm. (laughs) Some of that, I think, will be readily available. Do you think we might move from from with diagnosis from, so how have you been feeling lately, to, okay, let's just do a quick scan and find out exactly what's happening between your ears? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to tell your own story, <laughs> you may not like this, but yes. because That's good. I mean, in the rest of medicine, to be frank, you know, you could spend a lot of time talking to your doctor, but, you know, the reason that doctors love a lot of tests is a lot of argument ends pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I show you your coronary artery is blocked. It's blocked. You know, it's, you know, and really, if we don't repair that pathway pretty quickly, a bad thing's going to happen. I would love you a know. doctor to go, have a quick scan. Yep. You've got depression with a, with a touch of anxiety. Well, it, I think what I'll come back is not so much that sort of clinical bit, mm. but here's the problem. There's the problem. Here's the circuitry. Here's what is currently not working well. Yes. And here are the range of options available to altering that at this stage. And then I think as, in the rest of it, what, what are the risks and benefits of that particular situation? Mm. So I think in the diagnostic end, the, the assisted by more diagnostic tests, of the brain directly, of your genetic liability, of your sleep-wake cycle, that stuff is going to go ahead quickly. That, hopefully, will much better inform the choice of treatments. I would hope delivered earlier in the course. You just think about cancer, heart disease, everything else. The earlier we do it and fix it quickly, yes, the less longer-term problems. So I think you're going to see two things, better diagnostics earlier in the course of illness, better range of treatment choices. And some of those at the moment are going to be from way outside – what we think in a rather reductionistic way are the relevant chemicals or factors that we know because there's a lot of stuff, classic Rumsfeld, we don't know what we don't know. Exactly. We don't know. What, we don't know any final thoughts or? 
Well, I think the why I was keen to do this particular episode, James, is to say a lot of stuff is actually in the lab. It's coming through. And mm. I hear a lot of negativity every day. Oh, the treatments don't work. There's nothing new. There's nothing really happening. It's not true. What we have in Australia, of course, is we have a very tight regulatory environment. We don't rush in and do stuff. <laughs> you can see this with the COVID vaccines and everything else. We have, we're quite appropriately cautious. But the worldwide research efforts in this area are really interesting and really different. Partly out of genetics, partly out of new brain technologies, partly out of other areas of medicine being repurposed for the brain in ways that we never could have dreamt of before. So for those people who feel nothing new is going to happen or not going to happen in a while, I have another (laughs) – my favourite thing in medicine is just stay alive till we have better treatments. They're often just around the corner. Mm. you know. And I think people get hopeless in our area and I think that's reinforced a lot of the time by an anti-medical, anti-kind of bias, you know, sort of stuff. If you've been around in medicine before we had effective treatments, before we had antibiotics, before we had antivirals, before we had modern surgery, you know, you would have had a pretty dismal view about what medicine could do. That's changed radically in in the West in the last 70 years, frankly, to believing we can almost do anything, (laughs) which isn't really true. (laughs) Pandemics demonstrated that. Um, In mental health, we are going to see dramatic changes in the next decade that will have real impacts on people's lives. Good to hear. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, headspace.org.au, Beyond Blue, beyondblue.org.au, Head to Health, uh, headtohealth.gov.au and at Lifeline, lifeline.org. Org.au or call one three one 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 four.